bittersweet reunion. Um, this is the story. Really, we are finishing up the second act of Ruth um, as they are returning back to Bethlehem. Um, last week, we picked up where Naomi and her daughter-in-laws had heard that God had visited his people back in Judah and that he had brought bread back to his house, Bethlehem and the house of bread, and that they were, uh, they were out of the famine. And I mentioned last week that uh, similar to the prodigal who came to his senses when he was standing in the middle of the pig pen. Uh, and it says in uh, Luke 15, it says that when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But here I perish with hunger. And in the same way, Naomi comes to her senses and she starts to head back to Bethlehem, starts to head back home. The mathematics of sin are always consistent. They always add to our sorrows. They always subtract from our energies. They multiply our troubles and divide our loyalties. Always. Mathematics of sin. They add to our sorrows, subtract from our energy, multiply our troubles, and divide our loyalties. The famine was over, and the people that stayed got blessed. Uh, the ones who stayed close to the spout, right? They put themselves next to the spout where the blessings come out. And uh, eventually, they got blessed. Uh, don't try to run away when times get tough and try to fix the fix that you're in. Because then God has to fix the fix. <laughs> so just stick around and let him fix it in the first place. Let him do the fixing. At some point along the way, Naomi tries to uh, persuade her daughters not to go back with her, which is a very strange thing. Uh, they're going along the road, and she decides she doesn't want them to come with her. She tries to talk them out of it. A um, couple reasons why that might have been. We talked about maybe, um, you know, maybe she was embarrassed. Maybe uh, going back would have been a big problem with these two Moabite daughters. They were supposed to be in Bethlehem. They were supposed to be in Moab. They were enemies. And so bringing them back uh, might have been a bit of a scarlet letter to the people there. Uh, could have been that she just didn't want the memory of her big mistake getting drugged into Moab to be following her around when she got back home. Um, could have been that she was testing them. Uh, she wanted to see if they were really committed. She had all this grief that had changed her. And when she was going back, she's like, look, I have all of this grief. I don't need one more thing to bring me down. So if you're going to come with me, you have to be a support. You can't be a problem. Uh, Jesus, we talked about, did not make it easy for people to follow him. He wanted people to count the cost. He wanted them to think it through and be serious. And that could have been what Naomi was doing. And as we found... Along the road, there was a lot of emotion. There was lots of emotion. They were breaking down. They were hugging. They were crying. They were crying out uh, in their sorrow. But as we know, Orpah, one of her daughters, she ends up leaving. She ends up kissing her mother-in-law and leaving. But Ruth cleaves. Ruth has devotion. And so Ruth had decided ahead of time. Good, bad, or ugly, I am in. I'm going all the way. She had made up her mind. She wasn't going to be swayed by emotion. Uh, she had total devotion. Uh, she knew that whatever was going to happen with God was going to be far better than anything that could have been provided back in Moab. Um, and that's true. The worst that might come our way in life, if we have God at the helm, if we put Him first, if we have our eyes fixed on Him, anything that happens in this world is going to be way better than any kind of comfort that the world can provide. For here we have no lasting city, right? We have our eyes on the city that is to come. 
This world will leave a bitter taste in our mouth because we are supposed to be developing an appetite for heaven, an appetite for eternity. But Naomi had become bitter. She was angry with God because she felt like he had, his hand had gone out against her, that he, he was punishing her in some way. Um, but again, that's not what God's doing. We, I talked about this before that we were doing Sunday school and the big theme of the Sunday school to these kids was God is in a good mood. <laughs> Which at first I thought was kind of strange, but he's not in a bad mood. He's not angry with you. He has provided salvation for you. Now, his hand may have come off of that family when they wandered out from where they were supposed to be. And there are consequences to our actions, which is what they were experiencing here. We don't know how Elimelech and her sons died, but clearly there were some consequences to them leaving and going there. Um, his hand wasn't against her. His hand was actually going to be stretched out and pierced for her. And it helps to look at that when we feel like maybe we are being punished by God, when we feel like He is condemning us in some way, that is not what is happening here. Then Ruth goes through this whole oath about how she's going to live with her, where she's to live, I'm going to live, and your people are going to be my people, your God's going to be my God. Uh, where you die, that's where I'm going to die, and I don't even want my body being taken back to Moab. I'm going to stay with you to the end. And... While Naomi did her best to talk her out of it, uh, which was very strange, um, she says that she's going to go all the way to the grave with her. Um, may we never be those that persuade people or try to dissuade them from coming to the house of God. Um, even in our brokenness, yes, we are broken, but it's okay. It's okay for people to see our brokenness. Because what doesn't bring people to Jesus is saying, Come to Jesus so you can have it together as much as I do. You know, people are never persuaded when we preach from a pulpit of perfection. That's a lot of peas. <laughs> They're never persuaded when we preach from a pulpit of perfection. But when they see people who are still chasing after a perfect God, even though their lives are broken, they're going to want to see what that's all about. They're going to want to follow that. Um, we need to let them see the treasure within. Not... Not Nathan, not, you know, this physical earthiness, uh, but the treasure that's within. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul writes, But we have this treasure in earthen jars, in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power of God and not us. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Uh, it all belongs to God. Some Christians spend way too much time trying to shine up their jar or trying to polish up their pot. Um, trying to paint the pot, trying to make the outside look good. When in reality, we're just a bunch of crackpots. <laughs> I mean, the whole point is that that treasure that's within us is going to be shining out through those cracks. And people are going to see that, that the power belongs to God and not to us. People see that we are not perfect, but we're chasing after a perfect God. And then we can say, like John the Baptist did, that he must increase and I must decrease. I'm not going to spend any more time trying to pretty myself up. Right? We're just going to take our mess to Jesus and let him, uh, let him basically clean us up from the inside out. Uh, we all are longing for forgiveness, but not just forgiveness from our past. Everybody wants to be forgiven for our past. Um, but our present, anything that we might be wrapped up in presently, uh, anything that we might do in the future, that is the incredible good news that Jesus has for us. That we are not only forgiven of our past, but also our present and also our future. And that is a very 
freeing thing. Um, that's a game changer. People might say, well, if you're forgiven for everything that you've ever done, then why worry? Why worry about keeping the rules? Why worry about living you know, a holy life? And Paul says, you know, God forbid. Should we sin that grace might abound? No, absolutely not. But we are under grace. We are forgiven. His kindness leads us to repentance. Jesus said that all manner of sin will be forgiven except one, which is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I remember when I was a kid hearing that, um, and even into my adult years, thinking, what in the world is that? Like, I want to know what that sin is because I want to make sure that I don't commit a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit if that is the only sin that can't be forgiven. But if we think about who draws us to the Father, who draws us to Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit. And so if we are telling the Holy Spirit, I'm ignoring what you're saying, I'm going to be my own Savior, I can do it on my own, I'm rejecting Jesus, then that is blaspheming the Holy Spirit who has come to witness to Jesus. And that is the only sin that will not be forgiven, obviously. Okay, all that was recap. Leave it to Cleaver. That's what we had last week. That was recap. Now Ruth and Naomi are headed back home. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. One of the things that I love about the book of Ruth is you can see God's autograph all throughout it. Uh, we see all three persons of the Trinity working. God the Father, He's in control. Uh, Naomi sitting, the Almighty. He is the one, you know, that has brought us back. We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is drawing them back. Uh, they had heard while they were in Moab what God was doing. Uh, they had heard the witness and the Holy Spirit was bringing them back. And we're going to see more on that later. And then we're introduced next week to Boaz. Boaz is a picture of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Uh, this book can seem kind of small and ordinary. It's only got four chapters. Uh, I'm sure that uh, Naomi and Ruth felt pretty small in their world, uh, caught up in this story. But the ramifications of this book of Ruth are huge because God is giving us an example. He's giving us a clue as to what he is up to. In the middle of this circumstance where there's a lot of bitterness and now there's a lot of poverty, he is bringing them back to him. Uh, in a lot of stories, you have, of course, the main plot. Uh, and then you have all these different what we call subplots, right? There's different things going on. The main plot of the Bible, God has made a way, right? We have fallen away. God is bringing us back to him. And then we have all these little subplots that are going on. And I almost call this the subplot because there's this word that is used over and over and over again in chapter 1. It's used a thousand times in the Old Testament. It's, called, it's a Hebrew verb called shub. And it basically means to return, or to turn back, or to return, or to come back, uh, to repent. And it's significant because it is the main word that's used when it speaks to returning to God's saving grace, to His covenant, to His mercy. Um, that's what turning back to God is all about. In the Greek, or it means, you know, to repent is a military term. That means to, you know, basically turn around and go the other way. 
And that's the way that was used in the Greek. So that's what this book, the book of Ruth, and consequently the whole Bible is all about, getting back to God. Uh, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, he used it over a hundred times just in his book. He was the one that was pleading with the people of Israel, come back to the Lord. That was a tough assignment because God said, listen, I want you to preach your guts out, but they're not going to listen to you. I want you to preach as if everything depends on it, but they're not going to listen. And he did exactly that. 111 times he said, repent and turn back. In Psalm 71, I'm Psalm, Psalm is used 71 times uh, to repent, to turn back. Both books full of lots of emotion, but calling people into a deeper devotion with the Lord. This is really a tale in, in three parts, as I mentioned. The first part, everything that happens in Moab, uh, there with her sons and her husband. Second part happens 10 years later when they're returning on the road to Bethlehem. And then the third part, everything that happens once they get back home. It's all happening at a time, remember, when there is no king in Israel. But they, they can't see him yet. He's coming. He's on the way. And as we were singing in some of those songs, um, even though we can't see it, he's working. Even though we can't feel it, he's working. Uh, in Psalm 77, um, let me turn there. Psalm 77, we have a chapter that is entitled, In the Day of Trouble, I Seek the Lord. Psalm 77, verse 19, says this, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Crazy thing about footprints in the water. They disappear immediately. God's working in the middle of the storm. If you feel like in your life right now that things are unraveling, things are falling apart, you don't know what's going on in the middle of the storm, that's where the walk comes in. That's where faith and the devotion. He is there. He's walking out to us in the middle of the storm. We can't see his footprints, but he's there. We know that. Oprah, Oprah, Oprah was full of emotion, but she didn't have devotion. She didn't have the faith. But once we cling, like Ruth did to Naomi, we start to sense his presence, even though we can't see the footprints on the water. Longest chapter in the Bible. Does anybody know what the longest chapter in the Bible is? Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 67. 1967 says this before I was afflicted I went astray but now I keep your word before Naomi was afflicted she went astray her and her family went astray they got, they got led into Moab but now she's back now she's going to keep his word as she comes back to the house of bread and she brought somebody of huge significance to her the purpose of Naomi's life this is kind of a hard thing to hear, but the purpose of Naomi's life, all of the suffering, everything that she went to, the answers for why God and why me are Ruth. That's the answer because of Ruth. Um, I'll speak for myself. I have been the person that has been looking up at the sky yelling, why God, why me? Uh, the truth is that he is working in our circumstances to accomplish his purpose. And sometimes that means other people. And that's a hard thing to think about because we are concerned about ourselves. We're selfish, obviously. But to think that everything that we go through might be to save someone or to bring someone else into the family of God might be part of his purpose. He's not going to waste any of it. 
It's for us, but it might be for someone else too. Um, if we've ever, if you've ever uttered the words, God, use me, that could be kind of a dangerous request. Be kind of a tough one. Um, because afterwards, we have the temptation to say, well, I feel used. <laughs> well, you prayed, God, use me. You cried out, God, we want to be of use to you. Use us, be a tool in your hand. And then after he does, sometimes we don't like the way that he used us. But it just might be to reach somebody else. This is an interesting picture because we have Naomi, who symbolizes the Jewish people. And then we have Ruth, a Gentile, who symbolizes the church. The Jews and the Gentiles, they're now in the same family. And they're coming back. But they need a redeemer. And that's who we meet next week in Boaz. He's the kinsman redeemer. That pictures Jesus. Okay. Chapter 1, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Here we see the backslider and the new convert returning home. And when they get there, the entire place is buzzing. I mean, as we'll find out, this is not a small town. They're not going to be able to just kind of sneak into town quietly. Um, and the women start to say, is this Naomi? Like 10 years ago, she's not the same person. Like, what's going on? Uh, and I think they're shocked, but they're also concerned. And, you know, we, we hear of things in other people's lives, and initially there may be a shock. But hopefully it leads to compassion. Hopefully it leads to a concern. And since last week, I was just ecstatic that so many people stepped in to help us provide uh, and take care of Amanda as she went through her problems. She went through the wreck, and we were helping provide meals for her and comfort. Um, but as she returns, as they see kind of the mess of her life and what has happened, they start to reach out in compassion. She really just came home with the clothes on her back. I mean, we don't hear of her coming back with anything else. She has lost her husband. She's lost her sons. Um, don't hear of any kind of donkey or pushing a cart for seven days across the desert to get back home. Um, all she has is God and Ruth. And if you remember, Ruth's name meant friendship, right? Uh, all she had was God and friendship. Interesting because God said the number one law, what is the greatest law? Love God and love people. Love God and love others. She has God and she has friendship when she comes back home. Interesting. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon writes this. He said that she had been absent for 10 years, but her character in her bitter days had stood high with the people. And therefore they were glad to see her return, though they wondered at her poverty. Her many griefs may have so altered her that even the former acquaintances asked, is this Naomi? Such changes may come to us. May faith and patience prepare us for them. Faith and patience. Those are two things we have a hard time with, right? We want to see it. We want to see it with our eyes. But we have to have faith and patience. Nobody likes to have patience. We want to see it now. We want to see it and we want to see it now. But if we will have faith and we have patience, a lot of times those tribulations work patience in the heart of a believer. If we put our faith and trust in God. She said in verse 20, she said, Do not call me Naomi. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. It's been said that God may have to break us to make us. Um, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a scary thing to hear, that God may need to break us to make us. Nobody wants to sign up to be broken. Um, how do we make sure that in the midst of our brokenness that we don't become bitter? Um, you know, to avoid becoming bitter in our spirit, uh, really, 
It's just a humility of serving and being obedient exactly where he's placed us, putting our trust and our faith in him that he's working in our lives, that these circumstances are going to bring about our good and his purpose. And then we can live with a joyful heart. She tells everyone, don't call me pleasant. Or Naomi, her name meant pleasant. Don't call me that. Call me Mara. I'm a bitter person right now. Um, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. It's interesting. That word's translated Almighty in our Bible, but the word that she uses for God there is El Shaddai. And that word El Shaddai is only used about 50 times in the Bible. And the first time we hear it, it means all-powerful, omnipotent, all-sufficient one, the Almighty. First time we hear it is in Genesis 17. When God comes to Abraham and he's 99 years old and he is reaffirming his covenant with Abraham. And he shows up and I think Abraham's probably scratching his head at this point because he's like, I'm 99. Sarah's 89. Like, we're not getting any younger. And God says, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. I am the one that is all powerful. I'm the one that will bring this to pass. For those that are facing insurmountable problems in life, insurmountable things, things that just feel like they're going to be too big for us, to know that our God possesses an infinite amount of power and that he dispenses that power without diminishing himself in the least should bring us great comfort. It really should. And so it's no surprise that it's in the book of Job that this word El Shaddai for God appears 31 times, more than half of any of the times that it appears in the Old Testament, it appears in the book of Job. This man who had just been hit with wave after wave of despair and disaster calls God by this name. Um, he just keeps repeating it. The Almighty, El Shaddai, Almighty, El Shaddai. He is the one that's in control. He is the one that is in charge. All I have to do is just release everything to him. First Naomi said that it was exceedingly bitter for her daughter's sakes that the hand of God had gone out against her. I don't like it. I'm bitter about it. But in the end, he is almighty. He is the one that is sufficient. He is the omnipotent one. The word Mara probably rings a bell with some of us. It's the only time we hear the name Mara right here in the book of Ruth. But there was a place called Mara back in Exodus 15. If you remember, the children of Israel had just crossed the Red Sea. They had just been delivered from the Egyptians. Um, they crossed over. They're finally in the clear. But now they don't know what to do. Uh, they had just been delivered. There's no turning back. Let's look at it. Exodus 15, uh, verse 22. Um, they had just crossed. The Egyptians had gotten washed away. This is verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. The people set out. They were excited. Lots of emotion. And then a setback. Um, they sang the song of Moses. Anybody remember that song from when you were little? The Lord has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. <clears throat> a couple of us. <laughs> now you're just laughing at my singing. That was one of the songs we used to sing when we were little. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. They had just sang this song. Everybody was excited. And they set out. 
and three days without water, and a million people start grumbling, start doing what they do best, start grumbling at Moses. And Moses turns to God and starts to cry out for water. Um, everybody is ecstatic once they get there. They see water, they start diving in, and then they have to spit it out. That had to have been kind of devastating. Three days in the desert, they get there, and they can't even drink it. But God had a solution for their bitter situation and for our situation as well. It says that he showed him a log. And if you have a footnote in your Bible like mine does, it probably says tree. God showed him a tree and he threw it in the water. When things happen to us or things don't happen for us and we have a temptation to become bitter, the answer is to bring in the tree. Uh, the tree of the cross. The tree is a symbol of the cross. Uh, when we bring the cross into our situation, when we look at it in the light of what Jesus has done for us, he's going to change our heart. He's going to make our attitude a lot sweeter. Because if we see what he did on the cross, that the most important thing is that our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, then we can bear up as we look up, so to speak, when we look up at him. There will be hard times, and you might be in one right now. And... My encouragement to you would be, have you brought in the cross? <clears throat> have you meditated on him? We say the joy of the Lord is our strength. Uh, how can we have joy in the middle of suffering? How can we have joy in the middle of trials? Well, if we bring in the tree, if we look at it in the lens of Calvary and what Jesus has done for us, um, we, can, we can find sweetness in that time with Jesus as we draw closer to him. Uh, the God who can soon change our situation from sweet to bitter can just as quickly turn our situation from bitter into sweet. So let's keep our hope in Him, the one who can fill us up. Uh, it's really not uncommon for Naomi and Mara to be present in one person. Uh, we have our flesh and our spirit, man, that are constantly warring against each other, uh, going to battle. So finding these two, two people in one person uh, is not uncommon. I mentioned last week Jacob's son Benjamin um, and his sons had gone down to Egypt and they had come back up and they said, listen, if we want to go back down there, we're going to have to take Benjamin with us. Uh, Simeon's down there. He is being held captive. And when they told that to Jacob, he cried out, all of these things are working against me. Uh, Benjamin was his second son from the wife that he loved, Rebecca. Uh, if you remember, he had two wives First problem, two wives. Uh, he was tricked into marrying Leah. And Leah was having a bunch of kids, having a bunch of sons. And Rebecca finally cries out. She said, give me a son or I'll die. And God does open her womb and she has Joseph. And Joseph's gone. And Jacob's saying, listen, if you take Benjamin away, I'm going to die, basically. You're going to send my gray head down to the grave if you take Benjamin. But as Rebecca was having Benjamin, remember it's interesting because she said, give me a son or I'll die. Well, later on, she has Benjamin. And she literally is dying while she's delivering him. And they said, you're going to have a son. And she said, name him Benoni, which meant son of my sorrow. And Jacob said, no, no, no. We're going to name him Benjamin, son of my right hand. So she tried to name him Sorrow, and he said, no, he's going to be the son of my right hand. So not uncommon for those two things to be at war with each other. 
Uh, the comforts of God's grace are so much sweeter when they follow the trials and the troubles of life, which is what we're seeing play out here in the story. And she doesn't know it yet, but the blessing that's waiting for Naomi in Bethlehem are going to make her name, Mara, seem just as unfitting as her name, Naomi, seems to her right now. She feels right now, I have nothing but bitterness. But what she doesn't know is that the blessing that's coming is going to make that name seem pretty strange to her too. She's going to be back to Naomi. Verse 21. She says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She went away full and came back. Interesting. Um, she's found the power of perspective. Uh, interesting because it was a time of famine when they left. A time of calamity for the area. And yet, she was full. She had her husband. She had her sons. They must have had resources of some kind because they're setting out to make a new life. But now she's coming back empty. Um, sometimes in life we say, things are so bad. Whatever's going on in my life is terrible. And we lose perspective. Um, we forget how full we actually were in those circumstances before things got so difficult. Uh, we need to get the right perspective. Uh, when Goliath showed up on the scene, all the soldiers in Israel looked at Goliath and said, man, he is so big, there's no way we can kill him. But when David showed up and he saw Goliath, he thought, man, he's so big, there's no way I can miss. <laughs> he had a totally different perspective. We need to change our perspective. We need to bring in the cross. Uh, if life's hardships have left us feeling a little bit bitter or empty, uh, we can be strengthened with our relationship in God. Uh, if we change our perspective, we bring in the cross and look at our situation and what he has done for us. Uh, the one who empties us of ourselves, the Almighty, knows how to fill us with himself. Um, there was a, a poem that I saw in one of the books that I was reading. It said, the sun that hardens clay to brick can soften wax to shape and mold. So too life's trials will harden some uh, while others purify as gold. The same sun, the same trials in life can either make us better or they can make us bitter. Naomi has perspective, but she still literally doesn't know what she's going to do. All she knows is she needs to be back in Bethlehem. Uh, and as we talked about, when we backslide into the world, sometimes it's not just ramifications, not just consequences for us, but sometimes other people that are surrounding us are affected too. Other people can be brought into our sad situation. Um, Little does she know God's got a special homecoming planned for her. She's about to receive uh, restoration. She's about to be revived. Uh, in John 21, we see another sad situation. We have the disciples that are all huddled together, not knowing what they're going to do. Uh, Jesus has appeared to them twice after his resurrection. Um, and now they're just waiting. They're waiting again. He's gone. They're sad. They don't know what to do. Uh, and then Peter stands up and he says, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to the old life. I'm going back to something that's familiar. Something like I feel like I can control because I don't know what else to do. And so Peter has a little bit of a backsliding moment. And unfortunately, it says that those who were with him said, we'll go with you. So they all go fishing. They're all out there. And Jesus is so gracious to us uh, because while we have a tendency to backslide, while we have a tendency to sin or fall back, he doesn't see us that way. Jesus sees us in him. He sees us in our forgiven state, in our potential, thank goodness. 
uh, because we have a, a tendency um, to walk off the path. And the disciples are fishing. They've been fishing all night long. And the sun is coming up. They're exhausted. And all of a sudden, they see someone walking along the, the shore. And they're about 100 yards out from shore. And Jesus yells out to them. He says, children, do you have any fish? I think it's funny. Jesus calls them children. Uh, we, are, we act a little childish sometimes when we lose faith and we walk away. Uh, but he is very gracious to us. And Jesus says, throw your nets on the right side of the boat. At which point, I would have been like, <laughs> wait a minute. Who is that out there? About 100 yards away, they can't tell who it is. I would have been looking at them and been like, <laughs> looking at the shoreline. And they throw it in. And this has all happened before. When Jesus was standing inside Peter's boat. And he asked him if he could borrow it so he could push out and speak to the crowd. And they had been fishing all night and hadn't caught anything. And Jesus told him, throw your net on the right side of the boat. And Peter was like, listen, teacher, we do this for a living. We've been doing it all night long. And we haven't caught anything. But because you said it, I will throw it over. And Jesus fills the nets with so much fish they can't even pull it in. And he does the same thing here. Um, and John looks at Peter and he says, it's Jesus. And Peter looks at John and says, you think? <laughs> and he dives in the water. He's, I don't know the last time he swam 100 yards. It's a long ways. <clears throat> But there were so many fish, they couldn't even drag him in. And so he jumps in the water and swims all the way back to Jesus. And when he gets there, Jesus makes breakfast for him. I think that's pretty awesome, uh, how gracious he was. She says, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? Peter had denied Jesus three times. Um, Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And he calls Peter by his old name. He calls him Simon. Uh, Simon, he has kind of fallen back, right? He's become a little bit shifty again. He's become a little bit shifting sand, which is what Simon meant. Um, and that had to really hurt Peter, uh, that he was asking him three times, do you love me? Uh, he didn't need to be reminded that he had, you know, that he had denied Jesus. And certainly Naomi didn't need to be reminded of her blunder that they had in Moab. But what he was trying to do is restore him back to who he was. Restore Simon back to Peter. And the interesting thing, after that, he wasn't Simon anymore. He was only Peter from there on out. And I don't know that Naomi is complaining as much as she is confessing. Uh, the book of Job is a long book. It's 42 chapters long. Uh, God joins the conversation in chapter 38. So you've got 37 chapters of Job talking and his friends showing up talking, misrepresenting who God is. And God joins the conversation in chapter 38. And he has a little bit of a harsh conversation with Job, but he's trying to remind him that he is the Almighty One, that he is El Shaddai. He's the one that's in control, that he has a purpose in pain, and that it's not going to be wasted, that he'll accomplish his plan. And Job responds in the final chapter, if I can find it real quick. Job 42. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? 
That's what God said to him. Job says, therefore, I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And God said, hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Then Job said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job confesses. Job has the right perspective now. Uh, now I see you. I see you. I don't have my eyes on myself anymore. In my situation, I repent of what I have said, what I've done. Um, and the Lord revives and restores him. It's interesting. In verse 11, it says, Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all of the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And that word evil there is translated calamity or disaster, uh, actually. And there are some similarities between the life of Job and the life of Naomi. They both had gone through loss. They had both gone through uh, a lot of suffering. They didn't understand what the Lord was doing, uh, what they were supposed to do. It felt like the Lord was testifying against them. Um, but ultimately, he had planned deliverance. He had planned restoration ahead of time for them. Uh, if it feels like life is bitter right now, if it feels like God has testified against you in some way, um, we need to know that in everything that's going on, that He has a purpose, that He is working in the midst of our circumstances. Uh, Romans 8.28 is a verse that is hard to hear sometimes when we're going through, especially when you're on the receiving end. Uh, Romans 8.28 uh, we hear this a lot, and it can be comforting, um, but I have heard it, and I have received it in both ways. Um, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Um, I have a footnote here in my Bible that says that God works in all things for the good. And we hear that sometimes we're like, I just don't sense it. I just don't get it. I don't see how this is going to be good for me. I don't see how this is going to be good for the people that I love. Um, but that's where, that's where faith comes in. That's where the walk starts, where we have to believe. Listen, I know there's footsteps on the water. I know that he's coming out to me in the middle of the storm. It feels like the boat is rocking back and forth. But he's the one that's going to deliver me. He's standing beside me in the middle of the storm. Um, he is working in all things. So verse 22, Naomi 1, verse 22, says, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The chapter started with a famine, but it ends with a harvest. That's pretty cool. This is not simply a statement about the time of the year, either, the barley harvest. It is... But the physical famine started a spiritual famine in the life of Naomi. And her returning now at the time of a harvest is telling us that she's on the verge of a spiritual harvest. From all of the plowing, all of the planting that had happened while she was in Moab, the seeds that go down, right, and have to die to produce fruit. Uh, Psalms 126. Uh, I was thinking about this uh, last night as I was sitting there kind of going through my notes. And God had brought this to my remembrance. Psalm 126, 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's a spiritual truth that death is the way to life. Um, in John 12, 
John 12, 23. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's talking to them about this very principle. 12, 23. He says this. 12, 23 and 25. I must have copied that wrong. And Jesus answered them and he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The death of Stephen the martyr, uh, as death was working in Stephen, there was a man standing by by the name of Saul. And as death worked in Stephen, life was beginning to work inside of uh, Saul, and he had a roadside conversion as he turned into Paul. And so too here, as death is working in the life of Naomi, so too, um, so as death is working in Naomi, life is working in the life of Ruth as she has a roadside conversion. <clears throat> Jesus says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who have no need of repentance. Um, this is basically that show plot. The repentance, the turning, the going back to Jesus. They come back to Bethlehem in the springtime. The time when everything is springing forth. All of this new life. Uh, not a coincidence. The barley harvest actually is the time of the Passover. Uh, that's when they would have been celebrating Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, when did the backslider and the new convert come home? During Passover. Uh, we just celebrated it. Uh, the death, the forgiveness, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Um, I was reading this in my study this week. This was really cool. I had to share it. Um, I talked about God's invisible footprints in the story and how we see the Trinity. We see God, the Almighty, and then we see Jesus being pictured in the person of Boaz. And we have the Holy Spirit who's drawing them back. And then we're going to see it here uh, in the next portion. All three figures of the Godhead working. Um, in the Passover meal... Uh, they would make three pieces of unleavened bread. This is during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They would make three pieces for the Seder meal. And uh, the bread, actually I'll show a picture of it. You can put that up there. Uh, the bread, how they make it, is actually pierced and striped. The way that it gets baked, it actually has holes in it. And then when it's baked, it looks like it has stripes on it. Um, and it's a beautiful picture of Jesus. But what I didn't realize is that it's put into this bag... And there are three pockets in this bag. It gets placed in each of these. And that bag is called, uh, the word is called kabad, which, is, which means unity or one. And so these three pieces of bread go in there. The first one never gets taken out. It just stays in there the whole time, unseen. The second one, the middle one, gets broken in the, at the beginning of the feast. And half of it stays inside the bag. The other half gets wrapped up in a linen cloth. And gets hidden somewhere in the house. And if there's kids in the house, they actually get to go try to find it later. So that should symbolize for us, we should know, Jesus as he is wrapped up in the linen cloth. And then the last one gets taken out and eaten at the Seder meal. Um, it's a really cool picture. We have God the Father who is unseen. We have God the Son who is broken. He took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Half of it wrapped up in the linen cloth. And then the last one is eaten, uh, goes inside of you. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. It was interesting because I got on a couple websites just trying to look at this story um, and this tradition. 
And on these Jewish sites, they give all kinds of reasons um, why they think that this symbolizes different things in the Seder meal, but they don't really, so they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so they don't buy into this. Um, they have all different reasons why they think it represents this, or they think it could represent that. They don't really have, um, they're not really in agreement on any one thing. But for the believer, we can see clearly the picture that God has painted here uh, in the Passover meal. Uh, it's an amazing picture of the Trinity in the matzah's bread. Uh, they were coming back at Passover. They would have been eating this Passover, all of these different elements, pointing to the person of Jesus, the Godhead, uh, everything that was working in their life, the Holy Spirit bringing them back, um, the kinsman redeemer that we're going to meet next week. No matter what is going on in our life, we can trust, we can put our faith in the fact that we know God is working, even when we can't feel it, even when we can't see it. Um, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing when we pursue Jesus. He says, seek me and you shall find me. Uh, there are so many things that we try to seek in this world, so many th things that we try to find answers in. Uh, but if we truly will leave everything else aside, stay out of Moab, and pursue him, he's going to meet us right where we're at, and he's going to fill us up. I'm sorry, you guys can come back up. Um, we need to bring our broken mess back to, Beth back to Bethlehem back to the house of bread and there he's going to revive us he's going to restore us um, she's got a bittersweet reunion coming it's interesting because the people there obviously were exceeded, excited to see her come back uh, but they certainly wondered at her poverty why she was so different um, one of the things and I said it before that I thought resounded the most with me is that the blessing that was waiting for her was going to make that name Mara seemed just as out of place as the name Naomi felt for her right then. God is so gracious to bring those comforts back into our life, and they're the sweetest, of course, when they follow uh, trouble, when they follow, follow hard times in our life. Um, but if we just stay put, if we let Him fix it, it's going to be that much sweeter, and we're going to get filled up. Why don't we pray, and then we will worship once again. Father, we just are so grateful that the way you see us, Lord, is forgiven and restored and you want to revive us or that you don't condemn us. The Holy Spirit convicts us and leads us into all truth. But God, you want to be the one that is our source, our all-sufficient one, the all-powerful one, our El Shaddai. God, we just thankful that even though we are childish sometimes, uh, you are faithful to restore us and bring us back. So I pray that if we have any bitterness in our lives, anything that we're holding on to, uh, because life is not the way that we would like it to be, that we would bring in the tree, that we would view our situation in light of the cross. As you make that time so much sweeter for us, as we commune with you, and you change our heart, that we can see things through your eyes, God. Just thank you for the way you're working. In Jesus' name.